Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as He tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air on the side of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt. And become boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils, breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it today. We've come now to the second of three plague cycles. 
Remember that the story of the ten plagues has a literary structure to it. The ten plagues are grouped into three groups of three, with the tenth and final plague being set off on its own and given special attention. The most obvious marker of this structure is the setting in which Moses introduces each plague. Plagues 1, 4, and 7 are introduced early in the morning and by the riverside. Plagues 2, 5, and 8 are introduced in Pharaoh's courtyard. Go into Pharaoh, the Lord says at the introduction of these plagues. And plagues 3, 6, and 9 are introduced outdoors without any um, confrontation with Pharaoh ahead of time. And so we have these three cycles of three that are apparent within the text. Uh, Last Sunday, we considered the first three plagues, uh, one at a time, and I made five observations about each of them. Uh, This morning, I'm going to take a different approach. I wish to make five general observations about the entire second plague cycle, that is, plagues four, five, and six together. And so I have five observations to make about this entire plague cycle. One, we will consider Moses' firm stance. Two, we'll consider the intensification of these plagues. Three, we'll consider the distinction made between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. Four, we will consider the shaming of the gods of Egypt. And five, we will have a word to say about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, There will not be reflections at the end of this sermon, but rather reflections and suggestions for application will be uh, peppered throughout these five observations. So first of all, consider Moses' firm stance. In 8.20, we read, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. This confrontation took place early in the morning and by the riverside. Perhaps it was the custom of Pharaoh to rise up early in the morning and to worship there. We don't know for certain, but perhaps that is what was going on. But whatever he was doing, whatever Pharaoh was doing, we are told that Moses was to present himself before him. And the Hebrew word translated as present means to stand, to confront, or to take one's stand. I think the meaning is this. Moses was called by God to take a firm stance before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And this he did. He stood boldly before Pharaoh on the banks of the Nile and made the same demand that he had made previously. Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Here I am observing that we have witnessed the development of a great leader in the Exodus story. Do you see that? Uh, Moses has uh, made extraordinary progress as a leader. He attempted to deliver the Hebrews 40 years before, but remember he did it in his own strength and not by the word of the Lord, and he failed. Forty years he spent in the wilderness, and when the Lord did call him to deliver the Hebrews, he lacked faith, he lacked confidence. It's as if he had swung from one extreme to the other. At first, he thought he could deliver the Hebrews in his own strength. Perhaps there was a bit of pride there. I think there certainly was. But then when the Lord calls him in the wilderness, he's very unsure of himself. And so he had swung from one extreme to the next. But here, finally, it seems as if Moses is in a groove. He's a humble, calm cool and collected 
and yet firm and courageous leader. Do you see that now? It seems as if he has finally settled into his role as the deliverer of God's people. He courageously stood before Pharaoh. We should not minimize how bold this was. Could you imagine doing something like this before one of the great and powerful world leaders of our day? Um, it was a very courageous thing that, that Moses did. And so now he is, he is standing before Pharaoh. He's presenting himself before Pharaoh. And he is delivering the word of the Lord with, with consistency. The Lord says, let my people go that they may serve me. He is consistently delivering the word of God uh, even in the face of this great and powerful world leader. And he calmly refused to compromise. And notice that Pharaoh did attempt to get Moses to compromise. In 8.25 we read, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. I'll let you worship your God, but you must do it here and within the land. But Moses refused, saying, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. And, and that was true. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey. I've told you what three days' journey means. It, it refers to a long journey of indefinite length, in fact. It, it, that, that was a phrase commonly used within the ancient, this ancient context to refer to a, a long journey of indefinite length. He says, no, we must go, and we must go, we must really go uh, into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God. There, as He tells us, we, we must obey God. He, God has told us to go, to leave this land, to worship and to serve Him, and this we must do. So I am saying that, that Moses is firm, he is courageous, and he's unwavering. He's refusing here to compromise, even as Pharaoh begins to negotiate with him and to, and to say, well, if you'd only do it this way, I'll, I'll let it happen. It, it does remind me, and I don't want to go too far off on a tangent here, but it reminds me a bit of, uh, the temptation that was brought to Christ early in his ministry as he was tempted by the evil one in the wilderness. You know, here, here Christ is, is inaugurating the kingdom of God and, and Satan tempts him over and over again to kind of have power but in a different way. You know, take this course instead. And in Christ, of course, was un, unrelenting. We see the same sort of thing going on here in, in the story of the Exodus. Now, Consider a couple of things about Moses' resolve. Uh, we see, first of all, that it was all or nothing for Moses. God's word demanded that Israel be freed from Egyptian bondage to worship and serve the Lord. But Pharaoh proposed that the people worship the Lord while remaining under his authority. And I am afraid that many attempt to follow after Christ in this half-hearted, compromised way. They wish to worship and serve the Lord, but they remain in bondage. Uh, they have a divided loyalty. They attempt to have one foot in the kingdom of Christ and one in the kingdom of Satan. But what does Christ say about that? No one can serve two masters. That is Matthew 6.24. Uh, we see here that Moses would have none of this. He was not willing to worship the Lord while remaining in Egyptian bondage. It needed to be both deliverance from bondage and the service of the Lord. Both things needed to take place. And so it is for the Christian. There has to be a a clean break that takes place. There has to be a transfer from one kingdom to another. Uh, we cannot worship and serve Christ while remaining loyal to, to Satan and to, to the world and to the things of this world. We cannot have two masters. We must have only one. So no, the Hebrews would not, would not put up with this. Moses would not as their leader. Uh, they would not 
remain in bondage to Pharaoh and then worship the Lord there. No, they must be delivered from Egyptian bondage to worship and serve the Lord. Two, I'm impressed by Moses' tact. I don't know if you have recognized this. Um, Moses, as he stands boldly before Pharaoh, as he stands firm before him, he is tactful. He's respectful to Pharaoh as, as this great and powerful uh, king. He does not scream and yell at Pharaoh. He does not insult Pharaoh. In fact, he answers Pharaoh in a very careful and tactful way. Uh, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land, Pharaoh says. And, and, and Moses replies in a way that is fitting when speaking to a dignitary. He, he's, he's very tactful. He says it would not be right to do so. And he gives this reason, the offerings would be an abomination to the Egyptians, etc. Uh, he could have been rude. That's really the point that I am making. He could have been harsh, uh, rude, uh, cutting in his speech towards Pharaoh. But he, he answers Pharaoh in this tactful way. And I think we have a lot to learn from Moses and from Christ, from the apostles too, from the whole of Scripture in fact, concerning the way in which we are to stand firm within society and before governing authorities. We must stand firm. We must be uncompromising in our devotion to Christ. But we must also do so in a respectful manner. To state the matter very succinctly, a firm stance does not require disrespect. To hold the line, one need not be harsh or nasty. And those without faith may feel the need to use such manipulative tactics, but those with deep faith will find a way to be firm and resolute and at the same time respectable in their conduct. This is because faith, true and sincere faith, will produce peace within our hearts, brothers and sisters. And peace in the heart is what we need when standing firm for God and Christ in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Have you ever been in a conflict? Yes, you have, of course. You have. That's a ridiculous question. You've been in a conflict. And have you ever felt like just that, that, that passion within you? Um, you know, that inner turmoil? Uh, if it's raging within you, if you are not at peace inwardly, it can be very difficult to then speak and to act in a calm way. You know, that, that, that condition of the heart has a way of coming out. It manifests itself in tone, in the words that we use, in our behavior even. And I am saying that we need to be people of faith, trusting in the Lord that He will keep us in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And if we are people of faith, that should result in peace in the heart. And that peace within the heart should enable us to both be very firm and resolute in our convictions and in our devotion to Christ, but at the same time respectful to the world around us. We need to, we need to act like Christians in the world, brothers and sisters. I think um, this is a lesson that the church always needs to learn and, and, to, and to implement. It is especially important that we have this down uh, as the world kind of darkens further and presses in upon us. We, we need to think carefully about these things and be prepared. So we see that Moses had wavered in the faith previously, but here he seems to be very strong. And it is clear that God was preparing him all of these years to lead Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness and toward the land of promise. Can you imagine how daunting that task must have been to lead 
this great multitude, hundreds of thousands of people who've lived in slavery for hundreds of years out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness where they would struggle to find food and water and towards a promised land. I mean, and this was a mixed multitude. Some within Israel had faith. Many did not. There were many idolaters within uh, this mixed multitude. And Moses would have to lead them consistently, faithfully, patiently. You could see that the Lord has been preparing him uh, for that very difficult task. So we've considered Moses' firm stance. Now I'd like to briefly consider the intensification of the plagues in this cycle. The first three plagues were truly miraculous. And the Egyptians were truly inconvenienced by them. Uh, they frantically dug new wells when the water of the Nile was turned to blood. Uh, frogs inundated their land and their dwellings. Uh, they were a tremendous nuisance. They, they probably found it difficult even to sleep with the croaking of the, the frogs constantly uh, resounding around them. Uh, these gnats, perhaps mosquitoes, they covered the land. And so they were tormented by these things. But in the second cycle, things progress from the realm of nuisance to the realm of real personal affliction. First, flies covered the land of Egypt, and this is similar to the plague of the gnats, but the description of the plague of flies makes it seem as if it were more extreme. Flies were everywhere. They were in the homes. They even covered the ground on which the Egyptians walked. You know, for some time I've been saying that here in Southern California, um, it's the flies that emerge in the summertime that bother me even more than the extreme heat. Is anyone else of that same perspective? I mean, the heat can get to you too when it's 100 degrees constantly for a long period of time. But it, it's the flies that emerge in that season. You know, they're just such a nuisance. But here I'm complaining about having, you know, five or six or maybe, you know, even a dozen of them in my house. That's what I'm complaining about. But here in this plague, flies were everywhere. The, the, the whole land of Egypt uh, and the Egyptians were covered with flies, uh, with the exception of the land where the Hebrews lived. We'll come to that in a moment. And most of the Egyptians would not have had anything like screens on their windows. So the flies would have filled the houses too. They would have pestered the Egyptians even as they slept. And I'm saying it must have been tormenting. Next, the Egyptians' livestock perished. And this, is, this must have been utterly devastating economically speaking. In 9.6 the ESV says all the livestock of the Egyptians died. This translation, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, has led students of the Bible to wonder if we have a contradiction in the text. For in the account of the seventh plague, the Egyptians are warned to bring their livestock out of the field before the plague of hail descends upon them. So, where did these livestock come from if they all had died in the fifth plague? I think the answer is really quite simple. It is that the Hebrew word translated as all by the ESV and other English translations can also mean all sorts of or all over the place. So the context, we have to read in context, the context clarifies that not every animal belonging to the Egyptians died, but all kinds of animals in all places. How many 
we aren't told, we don't know for sure, but it was enough to notice. There was obviously a plague that struck the livestock of the Egyptians. All kinds of animals died. It was a very severe plague upon the livestock that were in the field. I'm here now reading from 9.3, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. Do you notice how in 9.3 these different animals are mentioned to us? I think that's the meaning of the word all. Um, all kinds of animals Horses, donkeys, camels, herds, and and flocks. They died. The Lord struck uh, these animals. And and, and we must think in in economic terms here. Uh, We will think in just a moment in religious terms, uh, knowing that uh, the gods of Egypt are also being struck in these plagues. But this was a devastating thing that fell upon the Egyptians. It's more personal. It's really an affliction upon the people. And in the next plague, things get very personal. The Egyptians were struck with boils on their skin. You know, there's a theory out there that it was anthrax that produced these skin boils on the Egyptians. And in fact, the theory traces this, this theory traces all of this um, back to the turning of the Nile to blood or blood red. Uh, the theory goes like this, well, this caused the fish to die. The anthrax multiplied in the rotting fish. The frogs were infected as they came ashore. When the frogs died, the anthrax contaminated the soil where the flocks grazed. So the flocks perished. Anthrax spores would have then been spread by the flies, inhaled or ingested by humans, leading not to death in most cases, but to festering sores on the skin. What should we think about this theory? Um, you know, I'm actually open to it uh, in a limited way. I'll say what I said last week regarding the Nile turned to blood or blood red. While it would certainly be consistent with the other plagues involving frogs, gnats, flies, hail, etc., to think that the Lord used natural things like algae to plague the Nile or bacteria to plague the Egyptians with sores, we must not reduce these plagues to mere natural phenomenon. Clearly, they are not that. This is not all coincidence. You know, these are not just natural things happening in some, you know, some tight sequence here. Um, that produced this, this whole phenomenon. Now, these are not mere natural phenomenon. Pharaoh and his magicians were convinced that these plagues were the finger of God, remember, because no natural explanation could be found for these events. Do, do you think they would have, uh, you know, believed that natural explanation if one could be given? Of course they would have. They would have dismissed this out of hand. This isn't, this isn't the finger of God. This isn't the God of the Hebrews doing this to us. This is just natural stuff, you know. Uh, no, this is the finger of God. Uh, the, the timing is, is too tight. You know, these things happened when Moses said they would happen. They relented when he said they would happen. And they struck on such a grand scale with such precision that all who observed knew for certain that it was the God of the Hebrews who sent them. So was the bacteria anthrax the thing that caused these boils? I'm saying maybe, but at God's direction. God is here demonstrating His power over nature, His power over the gods of Egypt, and He is plaguing the Egyptians with all of these different things, showing that He is, in fact, Lord Most High, and there is none other like Him. It's undeniable that God was working in a miraculous way. It's interesting to me that the magicians of Egypt are mentioned again in this passage. This will be the last time we hear about them. I think that's significant. But notice the progression with these magicians. First, they stood toe-to-toe with Moses to provide counterfeits to the sign of the staff turned to snake 
and the water turned blood red and the appearance of frogs. They stood toe to toe with Moses. You could almost picture them there. Moses, a humble, a humble shepherd, a Hebrew associated with the Hebrew slaves, and these magicians probably dressed so extravagantly, you know, they're, they're highly esteemed within Egyptian culture. And so there they are with smug faces, you know, standing before Moses, seeking to discredit these signs, staff turned to snake, water to blood, frogs. They ran up against some trouble, remember, with the gnats. They couldn't train the gnats, evidently, to, 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 to produce this trickery before Pharaoh's eyes. So we haven't heard about them since then, but all of a sudden they appear in the narrative again. Uh, but what has happened to these sorcerers, these magicians? Um, what we are told is they can't even come to stand before Moses. They cannot stand toe to toe with Moses anymore because they had been so severely afflicted with these, with these boils. Uh, they, in this way, are dismissed and never to be heard of again in this story. And I'm saying that this is what God does with counterfeits. This is what He does with counterfeits. This is what He does with those who would seek to take the glory that only belongs to God and to have it for themselves. I think this is what happens throughout the history of redemption, yes, but throughout human history too, men will rise themselves. They, they, they will raise themselves up. They will leave their, their proper place, you know, as servants of God in whatever realm that they are to serve Him in. They will seek glory for themselves. And what will God do? In due time, you'll have none of it. He will put them down. And so powerful men like this will succeed for a time. They will seem to be so powerful. But I'm saying that God will have the last word. He will expose them all as frauds. And He will put them to open shame. Just as He did in the Exodus. We've considered Moses' firm stance, the intensification of the plagues. Now let us consider the distinction that God made between the Hebrews and the Egyptians. And I consider this to be a central feature in the second plague cycle. You notice that it's constantly been emphasized. Clearly God distinguished between the Hebrews and the Egyptians when pouring out these plagues. In the context of the fourth plague, the plague of flies, uh, the Lord said, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In the context of the fifth plague, the, the death of the livestock, Moses said, But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And in the context of the sixth plague, it is said that the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians, with no mention being made of the Hebrew people. So we are to think that the Hebrews were not afflicted with these skin boils. In a previous sermon, I emphasized that God knows who are His, and He is able to keep them, even as they dwell in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, and as He pours out His judgments upon wicked cultures. And here, we see evidence of that great truth again. God plagued the Egyptians with flies, the death of livestock, skin boils, but the Hebrews were left untouched. And this was to demonstrate that the God of the Hebrews is 
Lord in the midst of the earth. It's an interesting little phrase there. Lord in the midst of the earth. It's the covenant name for God that is used here. He is Yahweh. He is the one who has entered into covenant with the Hebrew people. He is, he is Lord and He is in the midst of the earth. He does not just dwell here. Heaven and earth cannot contain Him, but He is present. And He is present for His people. He is able to distinguish between those who are His and those who are not. And He is able to shield them in the midst of calamity. The same distinction will be made in the seventh plague regarding hail. I think it is interesting that no such thing was said regarding the water turned to blood, the frogs, the gnats. Uh, it may be that these um, th- that it's implied here, and that in fact the Hebrews were shielded in some way. There might be an explanation that that leads in that direction, but but no such thing will be said regarding plagues eight and nine involving locust and darkness. I'm not sure how far we can push this idea, but in general, it seems evident to me that that in the ten plagues, we have both instances where the people of God are caught up and affected by the judgment that God pours out upon the wicked nation, and there are also instances where they are shielded, where distinctions are made. And in fact, that seems to fit with the whole history of redemption and with our personal experience, doesn't it? There are times where Christians, God's people, are, are caught up within a very perverse culture and they do suffer some things as a result of the, the, the perversity and, and as a result of God's judgments poured out. But there is also this truth that has been emphasized and will continue to be emphasized. God knows who are His and He's able to keep them in the midst of that. Isn't that our experience? I mean, we know what it is to live in the midst of a, a, a wicked culture. And we're impacted by the wickedness, even as God exposes the wickedness and I think judges it. Yes, we are impacted by it. But at the same time, God is able to shield us as a people and, and even personally and bring us through the suffering and the affliction and on towards the land of promise. I think that is a valid observation to make about the ten plagues and God's keeping of His people. I also think there is something else going on here in the statement found in 8.2. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Israel is here being set apart by God from the nations. This theme began with the call of Abram out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That man was called out of the nations. He was set apart. He was made holy. And God entered into a covenant with him, promising him many descendants, promising that a nation would emerge from him. This nation that emerged from him through his descendants would be a holy nation. So this theme was introduced way back then with the call of Abram or Abraham out of his homeland He was set apart and he was to journey towards the promised land. And now that theme is emerging again. Israel is being set apart in Egypt. They will be delivered. They will journey towards the promised land. This was their identity. They were chosen by God in an earthly sense and set apart by Him as His special possession. For the Lord Yahweh had entered into a covenant with them. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. It is the Lord who made a covenant with Israel, who keeps His covenant. 
In these plagues, a clear distinction is made between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, for the Lord had set the Hebrews apart by covenant. And this theme will remain throughout the remainder of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant. Israel is to be viewed as a holy nation all the way until the Christ emerges from them and accomplishes the work that God gave him to do. So here it is, right here in the Exodus event. A distinction is being made and it is going to remain throughout the remainder of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament scriptures. Fourthly, consider the shaming of the gods of Egypt. I've said before that the ten plagues are to be considered an assault against the so-called gods of Egypt. And in fact, that is what the Bible explicitly says. Speaking of the Egyptians, Numbers 33.4, and Moses wrote the book of Numbers. Numbers 33.4 says, On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So this text here is speaking of the Exodus event and all of the plagues. And Numbers 33.4 says, On their gods, the gods of the Egyptians, the Lord executed judgments. That's what's going on here. The, the gods of Egypt are being judged, as it were. They are not gods, really, but they are being put to open shame. So how were the plagues of flies, the death of livestock, and skin boils, judgments against the gods of Egypt? How so? Concerning the flies, allow me to quote Philip Ryken from his commentary on, on Exodus. I, I read this and I thought I can't say it any better, so I'll just quote him here. He says, But what about the flies? How were they related to the Egyptian gods? John J. Davis connects the fourth plague to the, I'm going to struggle with some of the pronunciation here, the ichneumon fly, which deposits its eggs on other living things and which the Egyptians considered a manifestation of the god, how do I say this? Anybody know? Uatik. There it is. Others argue that the flies were really flying beetles, also known as scarabs. Scarabs appeared frequently on the Egyptian monuments, mummies, cherubs, and amulets. The scarab was sacred to the Egyptians. They had observed industrious beetles forming animal dung into round spheres that they rolled back into their holes in the ground. As Donald Gray Barnhouse writes, they soon made a connection in their minds between the spheres of dung and the sun and the sky and conceived the idea that a giant beetle rolled the sun from evening until morning through the underworld until the sunrise brought it back into the sky once more. Thus the scarab became an emblem of the sun, which for the Egyptians represented eternity, the abiding life of the soul. Not surprisingly, the god of resurrection, who was called Kefir, was depicted as a beetle. Another possibility is that the plague of flies was directed at Beelzebub, which means the lord of the flies. Some Egyptians worship Beelzebub as their protector and guardian. Since his role was to protect the land from swarms of flies and other natural disasters, he functioned as a sort of insurance policy. But like the rest of Egypt's gods and goddesses, Beelzebub actually was a tool of the devil. This is confirmed by the Gospel of Luke in which he is identified as the prince of the demons. Beelzebub was a one representation of Satan's power over Egypt. It's hard to determine the precise connection between the plague of flies and the religion of Egypt, but in one way or another, God was demonstrating His power over Pharaoh's gods. The Egyptians trusted their gods for eternal life and physical protection. 
But the one true God overruled creation to show that the gods of Egypt were not in control. Beelzebub could not keep away the flies. Kephir could not raise the dead. While the Egyptians were busy trying to shoo away the flies, they should have realized that the gods they worshipped did not have the power to save. The only God who has the power to grant eternal life is the God of Israel. Anyone who wants to be saved for all eternity must trust in Him and in His Son, Jesus Christ, who alone has the words of eternal life. Do you get it? Uh, What exactly was going on here? We don't know which God of Egypt was in the crosshairs. Probably all of these that were mentioned in this explanation. Concerning the livestock, the death of the livestock, it only needs to be said that the Egyptians worshipped livestock, particularly bulls and cows. Don't forget that after the Exodus, as Moses is up on the mountain, what do the Hebrews, freshly redeemed from Egypt, do? They want, they want a God to worship. What do they make? They make an image of a, a calf to worship. Uh, they, they adopted that from the Egyptians, of course. They were infected with this, this idolatry, and they took it with them. They slipped back into it on the mountain when Moses was on the mountain. And so here we see that the livestock is struck uh, concerning the boils, listen again to Riken. I, I think it is, this is great. Uh, the Egyptians, who were well known for their interest in medicine, they looked to their religion for healing. Many worshipped Amon Re, the creator god, whom one Egypt, ancient text describes as he who dissolves evils and dispels ailments, a physician who heals. Others worshipped Thoth, who was the god of the healing arts. Still others worshipped Imhotep as the god of medicine, although he became more popular after the Exodus. But the most common deity for dealing with disease was Sekhmet, whose priests formed one of the oldest medical fraternities in antiquity. As John Davis explains, the Egyptians were consistently aware of the possibility of infectious diseases and sores. This is reflected in the fact that Sekhmet, a lion-headed goddess, was supposed to have had the power of both creating epidemics and bringing them to an end. A special priesthood was devoted to her called Sunu. Amulets and other objects were employed by the Egyptians to ward off evil in their lives. The plague of boils was an attack on all the gods and goddesses that the Egyptians trusted for healing. When the Bible says that the Lord brought judgments on their gods, it is speaking Comprehensively, God defeated the entire pantheon of Egypt, Ammon, Thoth, Imhotep, Sekhmet, and all the rest. And perhaps this explains why God sent such a variety of plagues on the Egyptians. He wanted to expose the impotence of their idolatry by causing each and every idol to fail in its area of special expertise. When the Egyptians were covered with painful oozing sores, they discovered that their gods could not heal. It's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting historically. What was God doing in the Exodus event and pouring out these plagues? He was demonstrating that He is Lord Most High. He is the Lord who has entered into covenant with the Hebrews, yes. That He's supreme over Pharaoh, that He's supreme over Egypt. But even in a more nuanced way, He's he's demonstrating to to the Egyptians, to the Hebrews, to the entire world, that these so-called gods are not gods at all. They are not worthy of trust. Only He is. So it's interesting historically. I think it's also interesting when compared to our contemporary circumstances, brothers and sisters. The Exodus event was unique. We have to be careful, therefore, when drawing applications out of the story for our modern day circumstances. But I think it is safe to view the Exodus as a kind of paradigm for the way 
that God works. This is how He judges sinful cultures and nations. He has a way of putting down the haughty within the world who would seek to have the glory that belongs to God alone as their own. He has a way of putting down false gods of all kinds, showing them to be false, making a public display of their impotence. They're not gods. They're not to be trusted. In some ways, the culture of the Egyptians seems so very different from ours. I mean, we look at this and we go, how strange, you know, these people were so primitive in their views. Uh, They were primitive and they were superstitious and they were idolatrous. And as I think about all of this, I say, are we really all that different? Are we all that different? It just looks different. It's not different at all. We scoff at their views regarding medicine and healing, for example. But I think our culture is packed to the brim with idolaters too, brothers and sisters. Americans worship many gods. They will not call them by the name God, often, but they do place their hope in them. They find their identity in them. They look to them for joy. They look to them for salvation. And I cannot help but think now of the way that people talk about science. Have you noticed the way that people are talking about science nowadays? You would think it was a deity, the way that the world speaks about science. And I cannot help but think about the way in which medical doctors are venerated within our society. Scientists and medical doctors, these must never be questioned. And I assume the same was true for the Egyptian deities associated with health and healing and the magicians of Egypt too. But what did God do to those who were exalted above their proper domain? He put them to open shame. And I cannot help but wonder if the Lord is not doing something very similar presently. The world is so filled filled with fear. The fear is largely fabricated in my opinion. That's another story. And what is the world looking for to, uh, to save them? What are they looking to for salvation? They're looking to science. They're looking to the medical professionals. And I think God is going to demonstrate that these will not deliver. They cannot. They're impotent. I suspect that these who are haughty, who have exalted themselves, will be put to open shame. There's only one God, brothers and sisters. There's only one who is worthy of our trust and devotion, and He is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Israel. Fifthly and lastly, let us consider the hardening of Pharaoh's heart Notice that Pharaoh is wavering now. He's, he's staggering about a bit. He's negotiating with Moses. He's requesting that Moses intercede for him. So he's cracking under the pressure, in other words, for he knows that this is the work of the Lord. But his heart is stubborn, hard, and prideful. It's even growing increasingly stubborn, hard, and prideful in the midst of all of these plagues. At the end of each plague, mention is made of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people go. And finally, but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So we have three different perspectives on the same issue in these three plagues. Pharaoh hardened his own heart, we are told. His heart was hardened by whom we do not know. It does not say in the second of these Uh, plagues, and the Lord hardened his heart. 
And we are to remember that God told Moses that he would harden Pharaoh's heart way back in 421, and now we are seeing it happen. And in 916 of Exodus, we will read the word of the Lord to Pharaoh. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show my power in you, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So we know why God has done it. He has judged Pharaoh in this way and has hardened his heart so that he might display his power through Pharaoh and so that God's name might be proclaimed in all the earth. This is such an important theme in Exodus, brothers and sisters. I'd be remiss if I didn't take time to mention it again. Uh, Clearly, God wants His people then and now to understand that the king's heart is in His hand. The Lord is the sovereign one, the King of kings. And the Lord of Lords, and this should bring us great comfort. Let's bow now for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, I do pray that you would help us as your people living in this world in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Uh, This study has been so timely for us, O Lord, because we do feel the world growing darker and darker. And it is so easy to be led to frustration, disappointment, uh, fear, and despair. I pray that you would keep us from that, O Lord, but that we would have strong faith in Christ and in you, O God. For we know that the King's heart is in your hand, that your sovereign will is being accomplished, that you are able to distinguish between the world and those who belong to you. You are able to keep us. You are able to put those counterfeits all about us to open shame. You are able to do your will, O Lord. And so... Give us strong faith and help us to walk by faith and not by sight. Keep us, O Lord, for the glory of your name and all of God's people say, Amen.